Well, good evening, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you, even if it is through this recorded format. Once again, I do apologize if there's any uh, background noise uh, going on in this recording. It is uh, the middle of the day here, but uh, I am grateful to uh, be with you here this evening uh, through this recorded format. Um, yeah, we would definitely love to be with you guys in person again soon, um, but at least as of right now, um, it's uh, it's uh, gonna have to be recording, but I will be with you soon. Now, um, yeah, I, I pray that uh, this evening's message will be useful to you all, and that this format will not draw your attention too far away from the hope our Lord wishes to provide us this evening. And as those of you who receive our emails uh, or are on our Facebook group know, our topic this evening is one that might resonate with some of you, but ultimately may make you uncomfortable too as we discuss failing sexually. Sexual failure is something that can happen prior to a dating relationship or even in a dating relationship. So it's definitely important uh, that uh, we consider this together as we continue our purity mini-series within our dating series. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6 and um, We'll read verses 9 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, for the, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raise the Lord, but will also raise up us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you for uh, all that you've provided for us uh, in your word and for the hope that is found there. Lord, we know that for some people... Tonight, this topic will be uh, a little uncomfortable because it hits a little too close to, uh, to the situations that they have found themselves in. And so we pray for an extra measure of grace that you might be glorified as we uh, seek to find the hope that is found in your word to deal with uh, this problem of sexual failure that uh, many of us have dealt with in our lives. Thank you, Father, for the grace that is, in, is found in Christ. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, in the world that we live in, sex has become an accepted and almost critical part of life. Sex is something that is a resounding theme in the popular music that we listen to, in the TV shows and in the movies that we watch, uh, in the books that we read, and in the social media that we engage with on a daily basis. And with such a heavy emphasis on sex in our culture, is it any wonder that sexual sin is prevalent among many Christian men and women? I would not be surprised at all if the overwhelming majority of our fellowship group has sinned sexually in some way, whether it be an act of the mind or a physical act. I wouldn't be surprised if every person in this room has wrestled with sexual sin in some form. And as bleak and as discouraging as that may be for some of you to hear, I want to encourage you all that there is hope. As we heard in our scripture reading, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers life-changing hope that 
for, for those who, who fail sexually. God's grace truly can deal with all of our sins and, and grant us the righteousness of Christ. You are not finished and you are not alone. God still loves you and still cares for you despite your sin. After all, John tells us in John 3:17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The primary reason why Jesus was sent to this world was to save lost sinners from their sin. That is who I was, and that is who you were, if you are here this evening and you are a Christian. But, perhaps, even despite these encouragements, you find yourself in need of more hope and encouragement due to your sin. And while you know that other people may have sinned sexually too, maybe you feel like God's forgiveness does not extend to you, either because of what you have done, the frequency of your sin, or a combination of those two things. This message is for you this evening. As we study sexual failure this evening, I want to do so through three truths that can provide hope and encouragement for those who have failed sexually. Three truths that can provide hope and encouragement for those who have failed sexually. And these truths are Christ's forgiveness covers all sin, Christ's forgiveness removes condemnation, and Christ's forgiveness enables freedom. And the first truth that can provide hope and encouragement for those who have failed sexually is that Christ's forgiveness covers all sin. Christ's forgiveness covers all sin. Now, generally speaking, people in the church we're pretty good at recognizing the reality of sin in our own lives, especially when we are talking about those so-called big sins. Or we might readily admit sin struggles to one another, but we rarely get specific with one another. Many times, the sins that we will admit to are the larger general sins, such as impatience, anger, and pride. And while we should confess sin to one another, we often do not confess deeply, nor are we willing to help one another deeply either. Should someone admit that they're struggling with lust, that is often where that particular portion of the conversation shifts to other topics. Or maybe we just kind of paper it over with some generalities, right? We might say something to the effect of, well, oh yeah, like don't worry, you're, you're not the only one. Right? Or we might even say like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a common struggle. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Right. Maybe, maybe a good brother or sister will offer to their same gender friend accountability of some sort. Whether it be in prayer, checking up on them, or, or being willing to, to sign up to be an online software accountability partner. Right. But that's often where the help ends. Now, we generally confess our sins. Right. We generally confess, oh yeah, like I sin around this area. Right, or with this area generally, and then we're generally held accountable. But because we're generally confessing and we're generally accountable, we may not actually experience victory over these general sins that we're willing to identify because we're not getting into the details. And we're not getting into the details. And like I've said before, right, you can't change in the fuzzies. Right? And if you have a fuzzy problem, you're only going to have a fuzzy solution. Now, the first step to deal with sin, especially stubborn sin in our lives, um, starts first with calling our sin what it is. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to be overly graphic here with uh, one another as you confess sin to one another to try and help each other fight sin. But you do have to be willing, at least in private to the Lord, to call sin what they are. And it helps if you have a friend you can be that honest with too. Uh, I, you don't have to be this honest with, with strangers. Right? You don't know each other. It's, it's not comfortable. That's fine. Right? But at least to a close friend who, will, who loves you enough to walk with you or, or to the Lord, you got to be specific. Right? And if you need help with, with figuring out what the specifics of your sin are, talk to a wise friend who can help you identify those sins for what they are. 
often the reason why battling with sin can be so frustrating and discouraging to believers who want victory from their sin, it's really due to an, an unwillingness to deal with their sin fully, right? That's why they're only willing to admit to their sins partially or generally. And because of that, we're only willing to address our sins partially or generally. And as a result, that secret shame that comes with being stuck in sin continues to grow. Now, we might find some comfort in the fact that people are praying for us and, and that people uh, somewhat know what we're going through, but we will still, at times, feel alone. We'll feel as if we're the only ones who struggle with this sin, right? And even though we, we know that technically that's not true, that there are other people who deal with that sin too, right, will still feel alone. Now, look at what Paul says to the Corinthians as he acknowledges the sins that, that uh, they were once dominated by. Look at what he says. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the God, uh, uh, the kingdom of God. Excuse me. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. As Paul points out, what life in Christ's church ought to look like in light of our shared salvation, he reminds them of what they were saved out of to encourage them to settle problems in a godly way. Now, as you look at the type of people that the Corinthians were, right, uh, you can see that Paul's list does not consist solely of people who have committed sexual sin. Right, we see people there who are idolaters, right, um, false god worshipers, right, those who are thieves, those who are covetous, they want what other people have, those people who are characterized by drunkenness, people who uh, are revilers, those, are, those people are the ones who, who are willing to look for a fight and verbally tear down people, um, and, and swindlers, right, con men, people trying to trick other people. Right, all the, these are the sins that are included as well. Their sin failures before God may not have been necessarily isolated to just these things, but they were the major sins that characterized some of their lives. And of course, there are others who were characterized by their sexual sins as well. Right? We see uh, fornication, that is uh, the sin of sex before marriage. Uh, adultery, right? um, breaking someone's marriage vows. Uh, to, to, in order to have sex with them. Homosexuality, right? These are some of the sexual sins that people were characterized as well. Both groups, right? sexual sins and non-sexual sins, both, both groups of people uh, equally deserve God's wrath because of their sin. They equally will not inherit the kingdom of God or its blessings. Now, for our purposes this evening, God does not single out sexual failure as being worse than any other sin. When you are, excuse me, when you are tempted to believe that your sins are so big, so frequent, so disgraceful, or what you've done uh, that, that God cannot and will not for, uh, forgive you of your sins, come back to this verse. Right? Come back to this verse if you think that your sins are just too big, too disgraceful, um, and that God cannot or, or will not forgive you for sins. Come back to this verse. Come back to this truth and feed your mind with this truth. Right? Feed your mind with this truth that all sin is serious to God, not just sexual failures. But, and this is the key, your failures do not disqualify you from receiving the forgiveness of God. I'll say that again. Your failures do not disqualify you from receiving the forgiveness of God. That is why the beginning of verse 11 is so key. Such were some of you. That phrase reminds us that there is hope in the gospel for those who have failed, no matter what your failures are. Do you have pornography in your past? Do you have self-pleasure in your past? Do you have premarital sex in your past? Do you have homosexual desires or acts in your past? If you confess your sins to God, He is willing to forgive us 
of all of our sins. Right? If, sorry, if we confess our sins to God, he is willing to forgive us of all of our sins. Remember that familiar verse, 1 John 1, 9? Those are key words to remind ourselves of when we feel crushed by the weight of our sins. Right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you feel those feelings of inadequacy, of, of super strong guilt, right, strive to drown out those lies that the truths of the gospel don't apply to you with more truth. Remember that when we confess our sins, God is more than willing to forgive us our sins. He's willing to forgive us no matter what. Now, of course, you know that this doesn't mean that you have a free pass to sin because Paul says in Romans 6, 1 to 2, uh, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, this truth that God is willing to forgive our sins despite the number of our sins is incredibly comforting. Right? Maybe not even just the number, right, but the variety of our sins as well. Now, if you think that you are not worthy of the gospel, not worthy of grace, not worthy of God's kindness, and not worthy of God's forgiveness, let me remind you that technically you're right. Right? Technically you're right. You are unworthy. You never were worthy, and you never will be worthy on your merits alone. Right? And that is the whole point of the gospel. That is the whole point of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I know that I'm not preaching anything new to you all, but for those of you who are trapped in life-dominating sins, for those of you who are here this evening and you are beat down, you are frustrated, and discouraged and, and you're thinking that it might not even be worth it to fight to live a holy life. I must remind you of these truths that you have practically forgotten. Or you didn't actually forget it, but you have practically forgotten them. Your salvation has always been a result of God's gracious work in your life to save you. He gave you grace so that your spiritually dead heart can come alive so that when you heard the message of the gospel, you were able to confess your sin and repent. He gave you grace so that all of your sins, no matter what they were and how much they controlled your life, could be removed from you and given to Christ on the cross. He graciously gave you all of Christ's righteousness so that you are no longer who you once were, but are now a creation, a, a new creation in Christ. All of this is by God's amazing grace. You did nothing to save yourself. And Paul makes it clear that the faith that you have is a result of God's grace so that God gets all the glory for saving you. We can't say, look at what I did. Look at what I was able to accomplish. No. Right? It was all on God's grace. That's the only reason why we are saved. Right? But not only that. Right? Not only that. But God also sets you on the trajectory to be able to please Him. Right? You don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to continue to be characterized by these sins. These are the things that you once were. These are the things that you once were. We have a way forward. We have a way forward. But more on that later on in our sermon. The main thing that I want to emphasize to you here is that for those of you who don't think that God's forgiveness applies to your particular sins, that kind of thinking are the same type of lies that Satan and his demons love putting in the minds of Christians to try and get us to abandon the faith. But when we think these thoughts. When we begin to think these thoughts, we have to counter with the gospel. Remind yourselves of those familiar truths and, and rejoice in the fact that you have indeed been forgiven of all of your sins, not just some of them. 
They're not just some of them. God's forgiveness is not like a gift card of forgiveness where once you use it all up, we're responsible for the balance. He forgives it all. He covers it all. Praise God for the fact that all of our sins have been fully forgiven. And it's this glorious truth that Christ's forgiveness covers all sin that naturally leads us to the second truth that can provide hope and encouragement for those who have failed sexually, which is Christ's forgiveness removes condemnation. Christ's forgiveness removes condemnation. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Christ's forgiveness is not only capable of removing any and all sins from our lives, but the forgiveness we receive is also capable of removing condemnation too. Condemnation is gone because of Christ's forgiveness. Now, I know that we touched on this briefly already, but let's dig into this idea a little bit more. Paul reminds the Corinthian believers that while the previous verses described who uh, those are in uh, who, who are defined by their sinful lifestyle, sinful lifestyles are still, and why they currently will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? But because of the saving work of Jesus Christ, there is a new reality at play. Those previous verses uh, describe who people who are continued uh, who are continually defined by their sinful lifestyles are right but because of the saving work of Jesus Christ there's a new reality at play sorry <laughs> about that little jumble the idea of the word washed is the idea of God's work of regeneration or in other words God's work to give us a new heart to make us spiritually alive and I referenced it in passing earlier, but Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Behold, new things have come. The importance of being in Christ is life transformation. We are new creatures, or if uh, you have the ESV, new creations. Our sins, which made us guilty and deserving of God's wrath, have been washed away. We've been permanently washed clean through Christ. In our daily lives, we know that washing something means that the object is clean, but there is a chance that whatever we wash will get dirty again. Right? If I wash the dishes, the, the dishes will be clean until I choose to use them again. Or if I were to do the laundry, right? if I were to clean the laundry, my laundry would only be considered clean until I wear them and then get them dirty again. There's always a chance for these things to get dirty again. But the regenerating work of God in our lives doesn't mean that we won't sin ever again in this life. Which those of you who are wrestling with sexual failure or have wrestled with sexual failure understand. There is still remaining sin that we must deal with until Christ fully removes it, either in glory or when he puts sin to an, a complete end. But the regenerating work of God does mean that your sins in totality have been removed from your account. They've been removed from your account. Yes, you're still going to sin, right? But you've been washed clean. You've been washed clean by God. Right, and we're going to explore this a little further as we look at these other two words. Um, as, as we look at these other two words. Um, sancti but you were sanctified, but you were justified. As, as, many as, as many of you know, sanctified has the meaning of set apart as holy. Right? In salvation, God has created us uh, in us a new heart. A heart capable of holiness. A, a life that is capable of holiness. Right? This life that, as Paul mentions in Ephesians 2.10, has been created for good works so we can do those good works is a holy life made possible all by God's grace. 
because God has set us apart from the world and has made us inwardly holy, we have the ability to live holy lives, even when temptation rages and claws for our attention. Holiness, not the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life, characterizes God's people. Now, obviously, we're going to be imperfect in our practice, but because God has saved us to be holy, allows us to be holy. He calls us to be holy as he himself is holy. Right, 1 Peter 1, 15-16. The word justified is a reference to what theologians call justification. So imagine, if you will, that we're in God's courtroom and we stand accused of all the sins that we've committed in our lives. The public ones, but also the ones that we've committed in private, whether you know, there just weren't, wasn't anyone around or the sins that we commit in our minds. And the evidence is clearly stacked against us. The penalty of our sins, the wrath of God toward us for all of eternity is indisputable due to the frequency, the volume, and the magnitude of our sins. We deserve eternal hell. But because of the death of Christ on our behalf and his subsequent resurrection, and because he took all of our sins upon himself, God removes our sins from our account. Right? But justification is, is more than God simply just taking away our sins from us. And you all probably, uh, or, or at least uh, declaring you, um, you know, innocent, right? You all probably know from watching legal proceedings play out in the media that a court or a jury finding someone not guilty does not actually mean that they are not guilty. Rather, it means that based on the charges that were brought against the defendant and the cases laid out by the prosecuting attorneys, the jury and the judge cannot declare this person guilty. They cannot declare the defendant guilty. Or maybe there's a technicality that uh, let the defendant off. Maybe there was a witness that was not credible or something like that. Right? Something was able to uh, let this person off the hook. And so because, uh, they, because they were let off the hook, they're not guilty. But it doesn't mean that they actually did not do this. When God takes away our sins from us, right? when he justifies us, he is not just declaring us not guilty. He is granting us the righteousness of Christ. And he views us as if we were Christ, as if we have committed no wrongs and as if we have committed no sins. He's not declaring you not guilty. He is declaring you absolutely innocent because that is what Christ was and is absolutely sinless. For those of you who have failed sexually in the past, this is is the glorious truth of the gospel for you. You might feel guilty for your sins, and though you know the truth of the gospel, you might feel as if you are irredeemable. That if people in our congregation found out about your past choices, your past life, you would be looked down upon. Perhaps you may feel that not only would you be looked down upon, but perhaps you would even be rejected forever. Not just from the fellowship, but from the hope of ever being married, too. If that's you, if that's you, look to these truths of God. And look at who he says you are now. Find comfort in them. Find peace in them. Rejoice in them. There may be some who are immature in the faith or may need to grow in graciousness, who will respond harshly to you, but still take heart. Though man may fail to understand, though man may reject, do not fear man. Remember how your Creator views you. Remember how your God loves you. Remember how your God chose to send His Son to die on the cross for you. 
Not because you were perfect. Not because you were flawless in your choices. Not because of your ability to resist temptation through your own strength. But because he chose in eternity past to love you and save you. It is for this reason. Those who are in Christ Jesus can rejoice. No matter what is in their past. Because Romans 8.1 helps us see that there is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has removed all condemnation from us for our sins in Christ. All of the condemnation that we had is gone in Christ. He does not hold them against us any longer because Christ has paid for it all. And that is such a blessed relief that those sins are no longer held to our account. Now, what do we do about the guilt that we may still feel? Well, the guilt that you feel is not necessarily a bad thing. God allows us to be sensitive to guilt so that we may be aware of our sins and so that we can repent of our sins. Guilt can be actually a really good thing that can push us to strive to be more righteous. However, because we do live in a fallen world, there are times where our guilt might be a little overactive, a little too strong, if you will. For example, when you know that God has forgiven you, but you can't come to forgive yourself for what you've done. Your guilt won't allow for you to accept God's acceptance of you. Perhaps you might even feel like you have to do something to make yourself worthy of the forgiveness that God has given you. Or perhaps you just think that the only option for you really is just to stay isolated forever. My dear brother, my dear sister, lift your eyes to the King who loves you and has himself intervened so that he could bridge that infinite chasm that stood between you and him. He doesn't ask you to forgive yourself. He asks you to believe in him, to repent of your sins, and to cast all of your burdens upon him. And these are the truths that an overly guilty conscience need to remember. And if you need help with that, we can definitely help you with that. But generally speaking, how do we deal with this? Well, we must repent of the pride that's in our hearts. That leads us to believe that we must contribute to our salvation. That we must contribute to to our forgiveness. And that we must do something to earn our standing before God. Or, if that's not what you believe, we must still repent of prideful thinking that God cannot tell us that we've been forgiven. No, you're not telling the truth, God. There's no way that you can forgive me. Right? That's prideful. It's, it seems humble, but it's prideful because you're basically saying, God, you, you can't say that, God. So we have to repent of that. Oh, oh, hurting ones. Your, your loving God has removed from you all condemnation when he forgave you at the cross. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Don't let your pride get in the way. Now, let me... Be clear, this doesn't mean that there are no consequences. And that it won't hurt. It still might hurt. It still might sting. Right? Especially if the consequences are telling your future spouse of your sexual failures. uh, Working through how what you've done in the past affects your current view on life and relationships. Perhaps it's uh, the consequences are dealing with health consequences. Maybe um, you have to install accountability software on your devices or, or uh, even pulling yourself away from devices altogether. And those are some, some real consequences that can come into your life. Right? But consequences does not mean rejection. Despite consequences, God's forgiveness still stands. And even if those consequences are hard and, and messy, it's a reminder of the fact that, well, we did sin. And, and that God is right to discipline us so that we can grow in godliness. But just because we did sin and, and we must be disciplined does not mean that God does not love us. After all, 
we are reminded in Proverbs 3.11, my son, do not, dis do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Uh, in Hebrews 12, um, the author of Hebrews actually quotes the same thing. I didn't, I didn't have a slide for this, but um, the author of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you skip down to 11, verse 11 of Hebrews 12, it says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't forgive you. He loves you very much. And that's why he disciplines you. To teach you righteousness. So do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Do not despise hard circumstances. Or consequences, if you will. Our consequences uh, are not bad. So do not despise the consequences. The truths that Christ's forgiveness not only forgives all sin, but also removes condemnation, are truths that provide our weary souls with so much hope and encouragement. Even if we do have to face consequences, we know that the reason why we face them is because God wants us to learn righteousness. And yeah, it can be tough and messy to deal with some of those consequences, right? but at the same time, um, these consequences can also help us teach other people how to avoid sin too. And there's a lot of reasons why God allows for us to experience consequences. Our Lord loves us, and nothing will ever get in the way of that love. Nothing will ever separate us from that love. And that brings us to our third truth that can provide us hope and encouragement for those uh, who have failed sexually, and that is Christ's forgiveness enables freedom. Christ's forgiveness enables freedom. Now, we do not have time in our message today to unpack this next section fully because under normal circumstances, this section would be its own message. But the reason why I wanted to highlight this section for us in its entirety is to show us the path forward. You see, sexual failure in this life is an ever-present reality. It was a reality back when Paul wrote his epistles, and it continues to be a reality now. We're not surprised by this. However, we often need to be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ to encourage us and to help us see that though sexual failure has significant consequences upon our lives, the holiness that God calls us to is not impossible, even if it might be hard. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to take a, a bigger chunk right now. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will, raise, will also raise us up through his power. So the very beginning of verse 12, it says, All things are lawful for me. And that, uh, that statement was likely a common saying in Corinthian culture that they used to justify the, immor the immorality in their living, right? the looseness of their living. It's possible that some of the Corinthians even used this saying to justify their sinful sexual lifestyle. Uh, and um, if you just e even flip back uh, a couple, uh, uh, one chapter actually, to um, Ephesians, uh, not Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 5.1, one, 
right, you begin to see uh, an example of some of those arrogant sexual sins. Right? One man in the church had an incestuous relationship with his stepmom. Right? And instead of rebuking him and removing him from the church, the Corinthian church did nothing. And not only did they do nothing, but they boasted about it as if it was okay. And Paul was reminding them here, when he says, like, all things are lawful for me, he's reminding them here that, well, technically, it's like you might be able to do whatever you want, but you shouldn't. Right? He, he even said in, in 1 Corinthians 5 that even unbelievers don't allow for such incestuous sin. Right? So why should the church? Right? And maybe some of the Corinthians were thinking, right, oh, well, sin's not that bad, right? It's all forgiven in Christ, so it's okay. I can sin. But what Paul wants them to see, that true, technically everything that, uh, yeah, true, technically everything is forgiven, and we do have freedom to do a lot of things, but just because you have freedom does not mean that you can continue to sin. And verse 13 is an illustration of that. Paul reminds us that God gave us food to eat, right? and he gave us stomach so that we can digest that food. Food uh, is for the stomach, stomach is for the food. Right? And then he draws the analogy this way. However, just because God gave us bodies to enjoy his gift of, of, of sex as a sign of deep intimacy and fellowship between a husband and a wife, it doesn't mean that the body was created for sexual immorality. The body was not created for sexual immorality or all sorts of sex. Right? He didn't give us bodies just so that we can have sex. And that's not why God gave us our bodies. He gave us our bodies so that we can glorify Him, so that we can serve Him, and so that we can worship Him. Right? That is why we are here. And that is the reason why God chose to save us. Christ's resurrection was not something that is just for Christ. It's something that all who believe share in as well. So, in light of that, the rest of the chapter, the rest of um, yeah, the rest of the chapter, verse fifteen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. See, you see, our union with Christ is so significant that we are one with him spiritually. And this does not mean that we are God, right? or that we are Christ. But we are unified in him. We're a part of him. Right? The vine and the branches, we are a part of the vine. We are a part of Christ. But Paul specifically uses a marriage analogy here. Right? He uses the language of the two shall become one flesh. Right? That goes back to Genesis 2 when God unifies Adam and Eve in marriage. Right? They were two distinct individuals, but they became one in marriage before God. And if that is what God's intention is for the sexual union between a husband and wife, then those who pursue sexual sins, no matter what forms it takes, must realize that when you sin sexually, right, that's what you are actually, actually doing. You're perverting that picture of oneness before God by becoming one with whatever you're doing. Right? Or, or, you know, who, whoever uh, you are doing those things with. Right? You're breaking that beautiful picture of what it means to be one flesh. which is ultimately, as you know, a picture of the relationship that God has with his church. Right? So if we try and justify our sin, there is no justification of our sin. 
And God doesn't want us to take part in that sin. And it's not because he wants you to be miserable or he's trying to keep you sexually repressed. Right? He gave us our sexuality as a gift for us to enjoy with a spouse, yes, but that intimacy that we have with God is what is pictured in the marriage relationship. And I'm not saying that we are having a sexual union with God, okay? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the sex drives that God gave us to enjoy only with our spouses are a picture of the close fellowship and intimacy that is possible with God when we are forgiven and we are one with Him. And that is why God often portrays His relationship with His people as the relationship between a husband and a wife. While we place our faith in Christ and are one with Him, we've been given that new spiritual uh, life in Christ. Right, sorry, when we place our faith. Right, when we place our faith in Christ and are one with Him, we have been given new spiritual life. And uh, we're unified with Him. And holiness is only possible because we are one with Him. Right? Our oneness with Christ leads us then to that command, right, flee immorality. When we sin sexually, we bend and pervert that special union that we have on a spiritual level with God and thus doing much harm to well, ourselves right, spiritually um, and, and to our relationship with God. Right? That's why uh, sexual sin does cause people to feel so guilty, right, to feel so distant from God because it does break that relationship, that union that we have with Him. But as you remember, there is forgiveness at the cross for all sorts of sexual sin. There's forgiveness, there's wholeness, there's restoration because of what Christ did at the cross. And since we've been given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, verse 19, and since we've been bought with the precious price of the life of God's own Son, the blood of God's own Son, we make it our aim to glorify God in our bodies. We have been made for our Lord. And since we have been washed, sanctified, and justified, we can resist sin. And we'll get into more details of how to do that a little more practically next week. But the main point here is this. You have been bought with a price. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. And as a result, God's not just going to abandon you. He's not just going to leave you to your own devices. He's not going to leave you enslaved to the sins which once dominated your life. He provides freedom in righteousness. And Paul reminds us of this truth in Romans 6, 16 to 18, when he says this, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we are free from our sin so that we may live lives of righteousness before God. And if you know Him, if you love Him, this is the good news that we remind ourselves of every moment of our lives as we uh, live our entire lives in worship to Him. Right? And this good news is the good news that you preach to yourself when you're discouraged by the fight against sin and lust. Praise God that he gives us freedom in Christ. And as a result, we, as a result, may we not remain far away, but may we strive to humble ourselves and draw near to him. And this evening, in conclusion, we were reminded of three truths that provided us uh, that provided us encouragement, hope and encouragement for those who failed sexually. You know, we should not be surprised if we are tempted in this way. And we should not be surprised if others are tempted in this way. Right? If you find out that someone else is tempted in this way, we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised if we fail sexually or if the people around us fail sexually. However, However, this does not mean that we ought to live our lives in complete surrender to sexual sin. Right? If we find that we ourselves have, have stumbled, right, that's why we need to fight hard. 
fight hard for purity. We've got to repent. Right? When we do stumble, it's not the sign that you need to stay away from the Lord. Rather, it's a reminder for you to lean in on the grace of God and to strive all the more to be pleasing to Him, to replace those sin idols in our heart that lead us to think that we deserve sexual sin and to leave them behind and to worship Christ all the more. And those three reminders, we're grateful that, that Christ's forgiveness covers all sin and that it removes all of our condemnation and that it enables us to be free. So do not lose heart. Do not grow tired of the good news of the gospel. Our hearts may be tempted to listen to the lies that tell us that we are not good enough, that it is over for us, and that our sins have made us irredeemable. But the truth of the gospel reminds us that though our sins may be many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Let's close with a reminder of those wonderful truths that are for all who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 33 says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or per peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your loving kindness to us, your many mercies that you have demonstrated to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us strive to live lives of holiness uh, and to be encouraged by the truths of the gospel that all of our sins have been washed away. They've been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That there is therefore no, condem no condemnation um, uh, for those who have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And that we are free from sin. Or we are slaves to righteousness. Father, remind us of these truths. Comfort us with these truths. And for those who may have experienced sexual failure in their past, I pray that you would encourage them. That you would remind them that there is so much hope because of the gospel. That just because they've sinned does not mean it's the end for them. It does not mean that uh, there is uh, no more hope for them. Lord, you provide so much hope. You are in the business of redeeming broken people. And so I pray that you would encourage them. We pray that if there's anyone who is here this evening who does not yet know you, uh, who, uh, are, who is convicted of their sin, we pray that, Lord, you would help them to see how much you love them and that you would help them to... Um, to want to know you more. We pray that you would convict them of sin and help them to see the beauty of the gospel, that you saved us despite our sin because you loved us. And, and you want for us to be able to turn away from our sins and to come to you. So, Father, we pray that you might save some even this evening. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray that you would bless the discussion time that we have coming up. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for your attention. Um, and uh, I will see you on Sunday.